0: Welcome to the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannik, and if you want to check out some of our past episodes, you can go to our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can reach me at my email, hope at upc-online.org. So today on the podcast, we have a continuation of what I feel is A very important conversation that I I started last year with episode four when we had Connie Spence on the program and she was talking to us about agricultural legislation and the billions of dollars of subsidies and bailouts that go to animal farming every year. Well, her colleague, Laura Reese, will be joining us today. And Laura is from the Agriculture Fairness Alliance, and we're going to continue this really important conversation. I I feel like it's the missing piece that we need to pay attention to now. You know, as animal activists and vegan advocates, we have primarily relied on a seemingly simple tactic— supply and demand. Reduce the demand for animal products, and this will result in fewer and fewer farmed animals killed. Less demand means less product produced, right? Well, <laughs> we're learning that it's not quite that simple. Government policies protect Animal industries. And the, there's just billions of dollars that are given to the meat and egg and dairy producers, as well as farmers that grow animal feed. And all that money offsets their costs, their inputs, and also their losses from when we're not buying the products. So this surge of plant-based products, of vegan products that we are seeing in the market because of the incredible work that advocates have been doing for decades now, it's not necessarily translating into less animals bred and killed. And that is because of the system. The system is basically rigged to protect animal agriculture. So we really need to to learn about this, to be able to talk to people about this, and to support the activists that are doing the work to change this. And I I do want to say, too, and Laura and I talk about this in the interview, but I don't want this information to discourage anyone. Your choices do matter. And the more demand for vegan food that there is, the more policies will change in our favor. So let's hear from Laura. Okay, I would like to bring in our guest now. Today we have Laura Reese, and she is the Executive Director of the Agriculture Fairness Alliance. She earned a Bachelor's of Science in Biomedical and Electrical Engineering in 1996, and she had an 18-year career in the semiconductor industry. And then in 2014, she founded a charity for Rohingya refugees in Malaysia. And then in 2017, she recognized the destructive environmental damage of animal agriculture and she began to study the issue. And a year later, she was lobbying Congress to help animal farmers transition to sustainable and non-exploitive businesses. She is now bringing that passion to the Agriculture Fairness Alliance, a nonprofit that advocates for fairness in the U.S. agriculture policy and laws and uh, benefiting farmers to make those transitions to plant-based farming, also to benefit animals, to benefit consumers, to benefit the environment. So we're going to hear all about that, and I'm really excited to have her. Uh, Welcome, Laura. Laura. Thanks Hope.
1: I'm really excited to be here on your show.
0: Great. All right, so let's get into it. So you're actually a fairly new vegan, I believe. Tell I us about yeah, tell us about when you went vegan, what what got you to go vegan, how you got into this work? Sure. Well, it was
1: fall 2017, and I was frustrated with my allergies, and um, a friend suggested I try an elimination diet. So the first one that came up on Google just happened to be almost exclusively plant-based diet. Mm. And during that time, I started to think, uh, oh, I don't need to eat animals. (laughs) Like it had never occurred to me before. I thought they were necessary. And my husband and my son and I started watching documentaries and reading. I'd say the the point where I realized well, I kind of had the aha moment was my husband and I went to Indian food with another uh, couple. And I was really clear about how I wanted the Bangambartha to be non-dairy. And, you know, we took the extra pains to explain exactly what we meant. And we, I ate it, it was delicious. And I asked for more to take home. So I, we got a to-go box. And again, I explained, no dairy, please. Well, when I got home and opened it up, it was a different color. And I realized immediately, oh, the first batch had had dairy in it. I I think before I would have just gone, oh, you know, they made a mistake, no big deal. But what happened was I spent about three hours obsessing and fuming, and I just kept kind of play acting in my head. Calling the guy up and just giving him an earful, like, How <laughs> dare you make oh, me goodness. participate in the <laughs> exploitation of these poor mothers and being separated from their babies and, you know, making them pregnant when they don't consent to it. Like, just, you know, giving him the full story. And I was, I was, so- sounds, like,
0: so- sounds like a new vegan. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And I was looking at, I was brushing my teeth at night and, you know, ruminating on this further. Mm -hmm. And I just looked at myself in the mirror and I said, I guess you're a freaking vegan now. (laughs) (laughs) And that was it. So that was about a month of eating plant-based and researching and just kind of, for me, it's very much a justice issue. Who are we to use our fellow earthlings Especially when we don't need to. Hmm. It's simple.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. I'm glad you uh, came to that awareness, and and it's so true. It's funny what goes the the thought process when we first go vegan, and you know just that wanting to tell the world and have and just not, you just can't believe that. That people just don't get it, because yeah. you've suddenly had this epiphany and this light bulb, and uh, it seems so obvious now. But then there's so much of the world that still doesn't get it, and and you just kind of want to tell everybody. But then we realize that you know uh, that doesn't work so well, and tone is a huge factor in how we should <laughs> present to people. <laughs> yep. yeah. Uh, yeah, but I but I love that you say it's a justice issue because that is. Truly, the the uh, the underlying, the, just the the most important factor uh, in all of it is justice for these animals. Yeah. So we had your colleague on, Connie Spence. She mm-hmm. was on the podcast last year, and and I felt that this topic of farm subsidies and bailouts, what your organizations focus on, is so important. And I I just, I wanted to continue the conversation with you. So your organization focuses on animal ag subsidies and practices and and government bailouts and all of that. And I don't think that many people understand that just reducing the amount of animal products we consume, which is the, the primary tactic of vegan advocacy doesn't necessarily translate to less animals harmed or killed in food production. And we're seeing that now with the numbers. So please start by explaining exactly what we're talking about and how government subsidies and bailouts work, what they are, and how the system is basically rigged to protect animal agriculture.
1: Sure. Agriculture subsidies have morphed quite a bit over the past century. It was decades ago, there was a big backlash to the idea of paying farmers directly to produce something that the market didn't want. So you had all these programs crop up that were like crop insurance, uh, subsidized crop insurance, yield protections, uh, margin protections. It's to the point where you have In the Farm Bill, which is passed every five years, which is the main legislative piece that governs farm policy from the federal level, you have, well, in 2018, 12 titles that cover everything from subsidies to livestock producers to nutrition programs to conservation. And within the subsidies to animal ag, It's not all just direct payments to say somebody raising cattle or pigs. It's actually a lot of compensation to feed crops. So you have uh, the ARC and the PLC programs, which pay producers uh, if they fail to produce an amount that's expected. And those are governed by the federal government. And then you have subsidized crop insurance, where Premiums and payouts are subsidized by the U.S. government, but the the crop insurance is administered by for-profit insurance companies. There are about 14 who are registered, and those, those uh, are sort of like indirect subsidies to feed crops. And then you have margin protections. For example, uh, the dairy industry has uh it's gone through many different names it's currently called dairy margin coverage and it's where dairy producers are compensated when they don't make as when their costs are high and their revenue is low so that kicks in a lot there are many many more programs but those are sort of the main ones and the effect of this is it keeps input costs low furthermore uh, another sort of subsidy you could argue is that animal ag is a leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions but their producers are not made to pay the pollution costs of polluting the the air with methane mostly methane mm-hmm. so that's another sort of indirect subsidy as well and so the in the end even when people don't want to eat meat meat stays cheap and uh, it's overproduced. And the federal government, furthermore, <laughs> has a program whereby they buy up oversupply and they store it. So we have cheese in caves that are owned by the U.S. government. And this is cheese that they they'll give out in like SNAP programs. And um, in, in uh,
0: caves, you mean like kind of underground bunkers or something where they're refrigerated or?
1: Yeah. The federal government actually has caves where they store cheese and they have other facilities throughout the nation that are proper warehouses too. Yeah. Wow. Uh, So when I first, after, after going vegan about, I did the month of, you know, I'm not going to be the kind of vegan who is all chatty about it. But then during that month, I, I started reading the USDA website and kind of looking at I just wanted to see, I don't know why I gravitated to the system level straight away, but um I started reading about subsidies and about how they were undermining uh consumer choices in the the free market. And I thought, well, that's not right, because if I refuse to take part in exploiting animals my choice should have an effect on whether animals are exploited. And then I came to realize that my choices almost didn't matter. I mean, they do. They do. Don't get me wrong. But from a supply and demand perspective, my choices in the market were muted by these subsidies that were reducing the input costs and failing to hold producers to account when they polluted
0: and there's also bailouts so how because there's because subsidies is uh, the the mm-hmm. keeping the inputs low the money right. you have to spend low and then the bailouts is kind of the other end where if there's oversupply because there's not as much demand then they're given money to make up for that is that is that correct right so if you look to annual
1: agriculture total cash payments It's roughly before Trump came into office, it was roughly 10 billion a year across all programs, including just the bailouts. And there are a couple. There's uh, the CCC, the Commodity Credit Corporation, where Congress. It's kind of like a a credit card that a parent gives to their kid and says, "Okay, well, you have up to this amount you can spend. Well, they allocate, I think it's 32 billion dollars where the USDA, so the secretary of agriculture, can, given their best judgment, they can tap into it and pay whoever they want, whatever they want. So that was kind of not used a lot before Trump. Uh, in fact, when President Obama used the the CCC through, I think he used the market facilitation program to do this, um, but basically he tapped into that credit, that line of credit and spent roughly 300 350 million dollars to pay producers in um, the southeast for cotton and for some i think maybe rice some other crops but there had been some natural disaster and he was um, giving them cash payments to recover above and beyond uh, what the insurance programs were providing well that was 350 million Fast forward to the Trump administration and maybe you remember these headlines, but you would see a, a headline where he's paying out $12 billion to farmers or $16 billion to farmers. Well, that was going through Sonny Perdue and the USDA and the Trump administration because the CCC is is the credit that the administration gets to use. It's like pre-authorized by Congress and they were just tapping into that and giving tens of billions of dollars to the point where in 2020 we nearly reached 50 billion dollars in cash payments to the agriculture sector. Now again, like I said before, it was it usually was around 10 billion dollars a year. Five times that just in 2020 alone. Now to put that in perspective, net farm income, and this is a stat my partner Connie likes to bring up a lot because it's it's important. Net farm income across the US is typically $100 billion a year. It can be $90 billion, it can be $120 billion depending on the year, but give or take $100 billion. So half of their money is coming from subsidies, from our tax dollars. That's not a sustainable system. Yeah. This is before COVID. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, it's reasonable to say, okay, well COVID hit, they needed help. Okay, sure. But he started tapping into this um, credit well before COVID, two years before COVID.
0: And this is going primarily to animal farming, animal agriculture, correct? I mean, the, your local broccoli farmer, organic broccoli farmer, is really not the one that's getting this money. It's mostly, is that correct? Mostly animal agriculture.
1: It, directly or indirectly, that's correct. So the, not, the main recipient of a lot of these bailouts and cash payments are soy growers and corn growers,
0: oh, which are
1: growing food that are animal feed. That's right. Primarily animal feed. Yeah. So, if I remember correctly, one of the bailouts was about twelve billion, and of that, over seven billion went to soy alone.
0: And that's not that's not making tofu. No, no, (laughs) that's animal feed.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And interestingly, this so like the broccoli growers, USDA has a term for anybody growing food for human consumption, and that's specialty crops. So like almonds, broccoli, mushrooms, uh, those are specialty crops. And when I was reading about specialty crop producers, I was wondering why aren't they getting more, more subsidies? There's a representative out of Maine, Shelley Pingree, and she often points out, look, the nutritional guidelines say half the plate should be fruits and veg, but less than 2% of subsidies go to fruits and veg. What's going on? and that disparity just isn't right. And I read, I remember reading about the specialty crop producers, kind of the attitude among them, probably not all of them, but in this article I was reading, it was saying that they just didn't want the government getting involved in their business. They just wanted to produce and not have a bunch of special treatment because they didn't want to be controlled. But the problem with that is, and, and again, this isn't all of them. This was just sort of a opinion piece. But uh, the problem with that is that their competition is so heavily subsidized that how can they be competitive when that's the case?
0: Yeah. So that's, that's, yeah, that's why a, a burger is so cheap, and a head of broccoli is. Much more expensive, yeah.
1: Right, right. So, in the bailouts, a lot of the money did go to, say, uh, pig farmers, it, it went to livestock producers, but the number one and number two are, are always soy and corn
0: that go for feed, animal feed. Yeah. So, you have two sister organizations. Tell us how they are addressing this problem. Tell us about the two, what, how they work differently, and how they're working to address these issues sure so
1: agriculture fairness alliance is a 501c4 charity that means we can be political we can we can lobby liberation 360 which was formerly known as vegan justice league is run by connie that's applied to be a 501c3 which is a more traditional nonprofit where donations are tax deductible And it's not a lobbying group, it's more of an education group. So Liberation 360 educates the population, our members, uh, followers, everybody, on how subsidies work, where the injustices are. And then AFA employs the actual lobbyists who go in and lobby for things such as our current legislation at-risk farmer diversification act. And then eventually lobbying for provisions in the next round of the farm bill, which we ex- expect to come through in about 2023. So, those are the, the two how they're related. Okay. One's an education group, and one's an actual lobbying group.
0: And you're planning to have a lobbyist, correct? Yeah, we employ a
1: lobbyist right now, and oh, our okay. aim is to employ five by year's end. Wow. Wow, that's awesome. Okay, I mean, we have to if we want to bring a vegan voice to the farm bill, mm. uh, we need to have about I think ten lobbyists by the time it's it's really being
0: debated and you mentioned your uh proposed legislation, the at risk farmer legislation. What would that do and And do you have any legislators on board at this time, and I don't know what what stage is it in, I guess? At-risk
1: farmer is just a pilot program, $5 million a year, and it would provide grants to animal ag farmers who want to transition to something that's lower impact environmentally and less exploitative to our fellow earthlings. So like we have a couple dairy farmers in Wisconsin who want to transition to hazelnut production on their land for many reasons. They're, they're both very um, environmentally minded. And then, uh, but it doesn't have to be that. It can be a pig farmer transitioning to something else as well. It can be whatever they want, as long as it's lower impact and non-exploitative. And it would just be a pilot program where these farms could receive, for example, a half a million or a million dollars to do the evaluation of their assets, evaluation of their land, evaluate distribution networks and come up with a plan for the end market, understand what end market they're going to be selling into after they transition. And that, so it funds that evaluation. It funds the actual transition itself, which could be repurposing a milking parlor barn into like a a mushroom growing facility or a hemp growing facility, or like the hazelnut processing building. Mm-hmm. And then it finances uh, the reporting aspect. This is a big selling point for policymakers in that the USDA is has a a real impressive research arm to it. The USDA, from my view, they're really dedicated to researching best practices and informing farmers what what those best practices are. And there's a whole push right now to rev those, which I can talk about a little bit. But the a key feature that we find plays well well with politicians is that this pilot program, the objective isn't just to transition these farmers to be have less impact on the environment and in fact maybe regenerate the environment, but it's also so that USDA can learn what are the best practices in doing those transitions so that that information can be leveraged by future farmers to transition.
0: Mm, that's great. Yeah. 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 Yeah and you mentioned the farm bill which as you said is such a critical piece of legislation and it comes up for renewal every 5 years or so and and I'm I'm just wondering when is it up for renewal next and what is it that you're going to be working on how can we make it better and to you know have it work for animals and the environment even more
1: yeah so the last farm bill was passed in 2018 And the next one will be about 2023, which means that conversations about what's going to be in it will, like they're starting now, but um, it'll be hot and heavy in another year or so. Mm. Right now we have about 25 provisions and ideas uh, for altering in the farm bill. And a lot of our strategy is going to develop around which ones we think are going to have the highest impact, what is going to be the most likely to pass. It's all going to vary. Um, With our membership, we send out, we sent out a poll itemizing 12 of the top provisions that we think are worth lobbying for that will have the most impact. And then we got their feedback. A lot of what they like us to focus on is at-risk farmer legislation so transitioning but we hope to pass that well before the farm bill and then maybe that will be a provision added to the farm bill as well Mm. and then on top of that the the sentiment among our membership is to work with offices like cory bookers on the farm system reform act and make sure that there's a larger plan in place that's similar to at-risk farmer but it's for high like large CAFOs and phase them out by 2040. That's very popular as well. Another thing to lobby for is just a a shifting of the priority away from feed crops toward specialty crops. Uh, Whether the specialty crop groups want to work with us or not, that's something we will be pushing for because that will mean that our choices in the free market Uh, when we choose vegan foods over animal-inclusive foods, that our choices will actually impact supply and demand versus being muted. So those are a few examples.
0: It's interesting that they're called specialty crops when that is the fruits and vegetables that are widely distributed for human consumption. I don't understand why that's considered a specialty crop. It sounds so fringe or off to the side when it should be the staple of our diet.
1: It's a bit of a euphemism. It's like an, a euphemism that, yeah, puts it off to the side when in fact, um, it's, you know, fruits and vegetables and grains are, yeah, those those should be central to, I mean, USDA nutrition guidelines are that they should be half of our plate. So yeah. they're not really specialty. They're they're staple. central to our diet. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's bizarre. So I would think that, that, that some people might be discouraged with all this information, uh, perhaps feeling that you know, going vegan is, feels kind of useless in the face of all this when you know supply and demand doesn't really work the way we think it does. Can you speak to how veganism is connected to this work, the work that you do, and still is an important strategy to help farmed animals?
1: Sure. Uh, first of all, I would say if you're vegan and you're an activist, keep doing what you're doing. What, your work is critical. It's absolutely critical. Just because we're focusing on the system and trying to break down the, the portions of the system that are muting our choices doesn't mean to say that our choices are, I mean, our choices are still really important we only need like the, this is an uprising, the three and a half percent number. That's critical. Like where we have a group of people where if we organize, we can make a lot of change. And if we continue making our vegan choices and we continue explaining to people why veganism is, is, the, is a justice issue and why we should be vegan and we make more vegans, that's just going to make us more powerful. One of the things I want to uh, express is that there are all kinds of estimates of how many vegans there are in the U.S., but even if you choose the most conservative estimates, if you look at that number and you take 10% of them and say 10% of them pool together $10 a month each, We will raise enough money as a movement to out-influence animal agriculture in D.C. So we have the numbers. We we just need to organize and put that money together. Now, I'm not saying everybody needs to give $10 a month to Agriculture Fairness Alliance, although please do. Although that would be nice. Um, (laughs) That would be very nice. But I'm talking about all of the groups in D.C. lobbying, coordinating, And having a budget of of 10% of U.S. vegans pooling $10 per month, we will be writing the farm bill. Wow. We will be writing farm policy. So your veganism absolutely is critical. I would say try to, if you can can afford it, try to get political with that money. You can get political at the federal level with us, $10 a month at afa.farm or agriculturefairnessalliance.org. Or at your state level, if you if you're in New York, voters for animal rights, Allie Feldman Taylor is doing amazing things. and in California, social compassion and legislation with Judy Mancuso, they're doing amazing things. If you just tack on that piece, the getting political piece, I think our veganism can completely change our system and our our system is changing this next farm bill is going to be heavily influenced by what people are coming to call regenerative agriculture. And that sounds great, and it's an opportunity. But if our vegan voice isn't in that conversation, it's going to be hijacked by animal ag interest groups to provision for um, subsidies that sound like they're benefiting Small farmers and sound like they're benefiting the environment, but they're just going to continue to line their pockets.
0: And and transition to more grass-fed and free-ranging and the and the rotational grazing and all that stuff right. that is can be even worse for the environment because you're using millions more acres of more land, land, more conflict exactly. with wildlife, more all of that. So uh, that's not the answer.
1: Yeah, and if we're not in that conversation, they're going to get sweet perks in the farm bill that encourage that damaging agriculture.
0: Right. That was my frustration with the um, Farm System Reform Act that Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren are backing. I did a podcast uh, last year kind of breaking down that legislation and you know, it sounds really good, like they're reducing the size of the industrial farming and, and and encouraging transition, putting money to transition. But when you look in, you kind of dig into what, what the transitioning is, it's not necessarily transitioning all and only to plant farming. No. There's certainly the transition to, quote unquote, sustainable animal farming, right. uh, and grazing and, and free ranging. So- so, yeah, that we have to it's true. our vegan voice is critical in there it is, it is, and
1: it's a classic problem of a lot of legislation that's going to come through might be better, but it's not good enough, and mm-hmm. the more we have our voice in there, the closer we can get it to uh good enough and not just accept, well, it's incrementally better than what was that's yeah. not that's not acceptable.
0: We need to do better. and we can't we, we don't have time for that. We don't have time for <laughs> it. And the disruption is is now, you know, happening now. exactly. yeah, exactly. I would think also too, on the veganism front, and it still being important, is on on the consumer level, when there is the demand in the grocery store, for more plant-based foods, and Kroger's and Safeway and all the supermarkets and restaurants are having demand for the plant-based foods, that's got to translate somehow to, I would think, at some level on some point to, to helping this work. I mean, to showing that, look, this is what people are demanding. Why are we subsidizing the animal food, Right. Absolutely. And in fact,
1: our lobbying materials that we supplied our lobbyist with that he requested and helped us create, they focus a lot on data generated by the Good Food Institute about how consumer demand is shifting and how it's not about, well, it's about opportunity. So we should be encouraging farmers to adopt better practices environmentally, but also it's not a hardship. It's actually getting them out of consolidating monopolized industries and allowing them to transition into industries that where it's all open skies, it's blue skies. If you're a uh, cattle rancher or you're a pig farmer or you're a chicken farmer you are suffering under the consolidation and the, the monopolization of a handful of gigantic corporations. Right. So when you look at the, the opportunity in the plant-based market, it's, it's opportunity for small farmers. So that's a, that's a lot of our storyline when we're talking to politicians. And it's, it's not just a storyline. It's, it's absolutely true we might have the motivation to want these farmers to transition because of our sense of justice and our desire to accelerate a greening of agriculture so that it's, it's, we're living in harmony with the resources that we have on this little blue dot called earth. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't have to be a sacrifice for them. It's actually like we're showing how it'll benefit them.
0: Yeah and that's something we haven't really talked about either that so these subsidies it's really not necessarily going into the pockets of the of the farmers the farmer that is farming the 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 animals right it's mostly going to the corporations that have kind of uh, overtaken the animal agriculture industry, and the farmers themselves are really making very little money or suffering under the weight of the Cargills and the Tysons and all exactly. of that, right? Exactly, yeah. I, I mean, the
1: in the bailouts in the past few years, the smaller farmers have received money, but it's not a lot mm. between the actual payments and the lack of enforcement coming from the Justice Department to break up monopolies. These large corporations are just having a run at
0: it. So what do you think needs to be done in D.C. to make sure that the vegan perspective then is heard and acted on?
1: I, I always come back to the vegan math. We have the numbers. If we hire lobbyists, we can make sure our voice is heard i would say the the main voice that we want to push is a the notion that these farm programs uh not just offer up like methane digester incentives or feed supplementation inducements for reducing methane or even what they're pushing right now which is carbon credit swapping schemes we need to introduce into the narrative the notion that programs can be set up to shift our system away from animal proteins and toward producing foods that are themselves climate friendly and sustainable the idea is we need to get policymakers thinking in a, a narrative in a framework where they they first see the the main Uh, Solution being to incentivize transitions to by providing grants to farmers to switch from environmentally expensive operations to low impact crop production. And then secondly, have them thinking just natively in their brains about shifting subsidies away from livestock and feed crops and to redirect that aid to producers of crops with significantly reduced climate impacts. It's, it's really about changing the narrative in D.C., and I see a complete lack of that element in farm policy thinking. There's a coalition of the Farm Bureau, the National Farmers Union, Environmental Defense Fund, Nature Conservancy, and a list of others. It's called the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance, FACA and they've put forward 40 initiatives, 40 give or take initiatives for the next round of the farm bill. And it's all centered around regenerative agriculture. It's all centered around having ag be part of the climate solution. If our voice isn't in there, they're going to continue with pushing these, these tech solutions that I mentioned, like methane digesters, And totally absent from that list is the notion of shifting our food supply from animal-based to plant-based. So that's what I think needs to be done. We can, in terms of making it happen, like with programs, we can do what David Simon suggests, the author of *Meatonomics*. just look at the tobacco transition program. We got farmers out of farming tobacco and into farming other things. And it was a bit of a rocky program. There were lessons learned. There were things that worked, things that didn't. So you look at the bright spots and you use those to make the transition as painless as possible. We want farmers to keep making money and we want farmers to thrive. Farmers are definitely part of the solution. But we need to introduce this concept of a shift from animal-centric to plant-centric food system. So that's what I think needs to be done. That's what the vegan voice brings to farm policy.
0: Yeah, so important. So, Because activists have been now exposing animal farming for its cruelty and its environmental impact in the last decades, last few decades, there's been this shift to alternative labeled products like cage-free and Uh. grass-fed and free-range, and we've been talking about these a, a bit. We, of course, call this the humane hoax in the movement or the humane myth, and I've actually written a book about it. What do you think about this shift in the industry?
1: I mean, it's marketing. Yeah. It's, it's trying to convince people they're doing the right thing without changing, doing the wrong thing. It's, <laughs> right. it's just straight up marketing. Mm. In terms of labeling and laws around labeling, that is a, that's a big topic in D.C. right now. The plant-based food Institute is very wrapped up in that. And people have all kinds of odd notions of what labels should mean and what they shouldn't mean and what legislation there should be. For now, we are, what's the word? We're letting PBFA (laughs) launch that battle, uh, and, and talking with them about it. And we're focused on farm bill. The group, uh, what is it plant based food association they oh. they're a more they're a um a trade group that represents plant based food companies huh. and they're doing amazing work with doing battle to make sure that like oat milk can still be called milk right yeah but it, it that's sort of adjacent to the question you're asking about with like cage free and humane milk so right now we have one lobbyist. We're, we're new. We've only been around for a year and we have plans to grow. And one way we want to grow is have a legal team, in which case we could bring suit against animal ag for, say, using terminology that's false, like yeah. humane milk, for example. That's a pretty uh, straightforward one when you can go to the farm and show that it's anything but humane. I'd like to put, some of these large corporations, you know, take them, take them to court over what they're doing to small farmers, to contract farmers, monopolizing the business, all manner of things. Um, and part of that could be this greenwashing labeling, like maybe we do a counterattack where we say you can't say that because it's just not true.
0: So Laura, what gives you hope for the future?
1: My fellow activists I'm working with for mm-hmm. all the way from the generation Zers and millennials who are volunteering with AFA, they are, I'm just so impressed with them. I'm sorry, all generation, the way,
0: generation what? Zers,
1: the Zoomers. The, oh, the like, Z, Z, Zoomer Zers. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Genera- Gen Z. Gen like Z, yes. Up okay. to 22 maybe now. Okay. So Gen Z and millennials, they just get how we should talk to each other like natively like they the the respectful ways they talk to each other they're so thoughtful about language I just I love it And, um, you know, sometimes they catch me up in old slogans I use from, you know, being a Gen Xer, uh, (laughs) like, hey, guys, right? They're like, "Mm," they don't even say it to me, but I hear myself being gendered, for example. (laughs) No, I can do better, right? So they really inspire me to do better. And Mm -hmm. then all the way to the, the older vegans, like I'm a young vegan three years, but you've been vegan 30 years. A lot of the other volunteers in AFA are are old school vegans and I am so inspired by them because they're still fighting the good fight and looking for new ways to be effective and it's just game on all the time Mm. and I just feel blessed and honored to be working with all these people who we're going to change the world together.
0: Yeah it feels good huh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm hopeful because of them.
0: I love it. Me too. I, I think that that's close to the answer I would give to the vegan activists. Uh, they're yeah. Just, um, yeah. They're my chosen family.
1: Yeah. Mine too.
0: Yeah. My tribe. That's right. The tribe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been a really just informative and wonderful conversation. I, I appreciate all your knowledge and uh, all that you're doing We do need to wrap it up now, but do you have any final thoughts?
1: I just want to say thank you for lending us your platform to talk about this incredibly important issue. Fixing the system is crucial, and that's really what we're we're focused on. We need the systems to be such that we can shift from animal-centric food policy to plant-centric food policy. And I would encourage everyone to, to go learn about our farm policy. At, so Vegan Justice League is re, rebranding to Liberation 360. But right now, if you go to Vegan Justice League and look at our subsidies 101, you can learn about how the, the farm bill works. The Farm Bureau itself actually has really decent information on how farm policy works. So educate yourself and get political. I, I can't encourage that enough. We need to be the people bringing our voice to farm policy and not just hoping that large mega corporation conglomerates are going to get it right because they're not.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Laura. Thanks for being on with us.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, Hope.
0: Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. If you think this information is important and more people need to know, please give us a five-star rating and maybe write a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That can really help us to be seen and heard by more people so we can have a more informed community. We so appreciate your support and we encourage you to learn more about this issue by checking out the Agriculture Fairness Alliance. We're going to have a lot of links in the show notes to give you more information. So check those out and know that whatever you do, it does help bring us closer to a compassionate world for animals. So please live vegan.